Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Well, welcome, Ben. So glad to have you here. I'm excited to be here. I'm honored. I feel like you didn't ask me to say this, but I'm going to jump in and say this. I just wrote a thing like I'm a math teacher, but it resonated and I'm really honored and thrilled. But nothing that I if it's helpful, take it. But I am no way beyond that, you know, an an expert in anything that I'm talking about. These are things that I feel like are true and resonate with me. But I trust people to kind of take or leave whatever is useful for them. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, and you're on to something. This is going to be a great discussion. It's very pertinent. Mm-hmm. And I and a lot of people are are having a similar experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know. I, you know, I'm not very good at math. And so <laughs> I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody who can teach math and do math. But we're not talking about math today. Yeah. But you obviously are a thinker and mm-hmm. you've done a lot of work in, you know, just organizing your thoughts around this topic of masculinity, heroic or healthy masculinity. Mm-hmm. And there's a culture war going on around us around this topic. And I think it's on, I know it's on a lot of people's minds. It comes up in my office every, every day, it seems like in some form. And, you know, we've raised three sons mm-hmm. and have a daughter and, you know, I'm a guy, like we're trying to talk about these things. They, they just kind of is woven in and out of our, of our marriage and family relationships. And so I'm thrilled that we get to talk about it with you. Well, and it's actually, it's funny that you say that because this actually started with some conversations I was having with my wife about how do we want to raise good sons, right? How do we want to build good men? And I think that right now there's a lot about what not to do and not a whole lot about mm. what to do. And that's, you know, I can tell my kids all the, of the bad things to do all day long. That's not actually as meaningful to me. I want to give them a target to aim for. And I think that was something that mm-hmm. I was really lucky when I was growing up. I remember there was this quote by, I think it was President Benson. And it said, you know, give me a young man who has served a mission and, you know, earn their faith in God award, and he will do miracles throughout his life. And something changed in the culture where we don't talk about those things anymore. And by the way, I think part of the reason is because if you look at that list and you say, oh, I didn't do that one thing. Now you're like, okay, I fell mm-hmm. short. So I clearly can't be that person. And I, I think part of our story is the story of the atonement. Part of our story is realizing that it's not a checklist. It's not that easy. Part of the story is that we can become something cool and something heroic and something beautiful. So um, the other part of it that right. where it really came from was this culture war that you mentioned. So I'm, I've written four or five different, you know, second drafts that I'm trying to decide if I ever want to publish them, if I want to go deeper, because it, but basically they're inspired by, you know, I go on Twitter and I see somebody calling themselves unironically an alpha male. I see people saying like, this is what it means to be masculine. And the thoughtful friends of mine are going, whoa, 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 that sounds too close to sexism. So I'm just not, I'm going to pretend that there is no way to talk about this without being proximate to sexism. And so all of our mm. thoughtful people who could articulate a healthy masculinity stay quiet. And then my kids are learning from their seventh grade gym buddies, right? They're learning in the locker room mm. what it means to be a man instead of hearing it from me, instead of hearing it from others, right? So mm. I guess the first thing that I would say is, hey, let's have these conversations. We're going to disagree, right? If you think that it's manly to work on cars and I think it's manly to do the dishes, let's have that disagreement. That's healthy. That's good. I think we'll come away in a better place. 
but raising our hands and saying, oh, no, no, I, I'm not an expert. I don't know if we can have this. Look, I'm not a sociologist. I, I'm not a gender theory guy, gender theory guy. But when I was looking at this, it's like, it's kind of like philosophy. And anytime I talk about philosophy, I feel stupid because I'm not a philosopher. But at the same time, it's like, but I live my life. And so I need to do enough philosophy to know like how to live my life, how to find joy, how to like interact with other people, how to treat other people. So, so that was the kind of the reason why I started writing this article was to say, hey, I've got to raise boys. And if I'm going to do that, how can I do that in a way that confronts this common culture? And I think there really is some politics to it. I think there is a lot in the common culture. And I wanted to kind of push back on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that a lot of the a lot of the loudest voices around masculinity are these self-proclaimed alpha males that are reclaiming and taking back masculinity. But it's, you know, there's elements of it that I certainly relate to and even aspire to as a man, but there's there's a lot of it that I don't, especially sort of the underlying philosophy, if you will, of it. You know, some of the surface behavior, sure, like those are things that I think are good developmentally and healthy and and such, but but there's, to me, there's, there's a broken philosophy about what it really, at the core, really what it means to be a man. And, and I agree. That's so interesting. I agree that a lot of the times, and I felt that in myself, like if these guys are claiming, it's taking up the space or holding the microphone, a lot of the times like, well, I don't want to be aggressive or sort of like advocate for that. Or, you know, it just, everybody just sort of quietly goes on probably, you know, doing things that are healthy and, and living their lives and trying to influence where they can, but not speaking up about what you know, what other versions of healthy masculinity are. And not only that, but maybe even just internalizing some confusion Mm -hmm. for themselves about, yeah, what, what is it really? And I probably, I'm not like that and I'm not like this. So I'm, you know, yeah, yeah, it increases that sense of the, the imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. which you had those two beautiful references in the article. And let's just comment on the article really quick, because we're going to link to it probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is an article that you wrote for Public Square magazine mm-hmm. entitled Heroic Masculinity. Correct, yeah. And and it does a beautiful job of discussing this topic. So we'll make sure that that our audience has a has access to it. But part of what I love about the two examples that you use, the one of the Lion King and uh the one in uh The Lord of the Rings, was that both characters that were wrestling with what what it means to be a man both felt like they didn't have what it took, mm-hmm. which seems to be yeah. a very common theme. Well, so if I can, yeah. I'll jump, so I have to give a shout out to my editors, Carol and Jacob and all of my friends at Public Square. They did, I think I sent them 20 pages of material. Whenever I'm working on a piece, they just, they, they grin and bear it and they say, okay, we will find the parts of this that are going to be really useful, but <laughs> I, I, I talk too long. We'll and, shape it. But right. Carol in particular did something <laughs> that was really meaningful. And she, she said, okay, I want you to think of the story that you're telling. And honestly, that was, it was about stories, right? So I'll give you an example. When I was a middle school teacher in Baltimore, one of the things that, that was a fad, and I think it was a good fad, but it was, very, it was very trendy at the time, was we called them lunchtime men's groups. And so the idea was to do it as carefully and sensitively as possible. You know, I'm a white guy teaching a group of black young men, right? And so you need to be really, really cautious about what signals you're sending and what you're assuming. But there were a lot of people who were starting to say, hey, what if we had like a lunch group for guys just to talk about guy stuff? And it isn't to suggest that people don't have good dads or that they do or anything else. It's just like, hey, time to be guys. And so a couple of my friends did one of these and it was really successful. It was like, come have pizza, but talk about, you know, guy stuff and, you know, make manly noises. And, you know, it was just, it was dumb. It was simple. It it wasn't that big of a deal. So once a week we would get together and we would do, you know, a team building activity. We'd talk about this stuff. And one day, 
we called it the Good Man Club. It was the the GMC. I can still remember the Good Man Club. And I borrowed a bunch of stuff from Art of Manliness <laughs> and like Brett McKay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I probably infringed on all your copyrights for Art of Manliness podcast. But basically, I wanted to talk about what does it mean to be a good man. And uh, I had a student mm-hmm. teacher in my classroom, and she's brilliant, and she is often teaching, and I am sure she's doing well. But she posed a question that I was really taken aback by, that I think clarifies this this contrast, right? This tension, I guess. We made a list of what it means to be a good man. And I was just thinking it would be a fun discussion of like, hey, your middle school boys don't treat girls badly, right? I thought it would be really, really surface level. And immediately, like within three seconds, the first comment was, you don't forget your kids and you treat them right. And then the next, and every single one of these got really, really deep, right? Like from the kids themselves, right? I was thinking it was just going to be like a lighthearted activity. And the kids got really, really deep, really fast. So at the end of this, wow. we, we came up with like 15 or 16 things. And I said, guys, you know what you need to do. Just be that kind of man. And it was a really meaningful, like, you know, my, what do you say? Like I started tearing up, getting emotional. It was just a really powerful moment. And my student teacher from the back chimed in. And I think this is a valuable way to look at it. She said, yeah, but is there anything up there that a woman can't do? I mean, aren't you really just mm-hmm. describing good people? Is it really true that these are things for good men? Or is, are these also things that are true for good women? And I said, you know, that's a really good point. Women, same as men. And I kind of defaulted to equality and and it's all the same, but it bothered me inside and I didn't have the words to come up with to push back. And so I was like, yeah, that's a fair point. And I just kind of moved on. A couple of days later, a student came to me and said, hey, Mr. P, I don't just want to be a good person. I want to be a good man. Oh, I think that's a really deep, like, and, and I will be honest, I think we have some really mixed up ideas right now, societally and culturally where we kind of have this deep idea that androgyny may be too strong, but like equality, like we never talk about how men and women are different. We never talk about anything like that. We're all the same. We can all be good. We can all be bad. It's all, all very, very similar in that way. And when you start to peel back the layers, that just doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel to me like I don't just want to be a good person. I do want to be a good man. And those two things are different and mm-hmm. that's okay. And so what does that mean? And so the, the next step for me was to make a list. I said, okay, what are the things that I've been taught make a good man? And some of them are probably gender roles and they're outdated and they're probably wrong and that's okay. But let me write down the list of things that make a good man. And when I looked at that big list, I said, every one of these in common culture is presented as a bad thing. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Give me some examples. Yeah, what yeah, were some of the ones? Some so of I'm not totally convinced that this is a useful way to think about the virtues, but I'm going to throw out a virtue and you tell me male or female, okay? And, okay. and by the way, I think this is probably cultural. I don't think it's like genetic and I, I'm not even getting, and, mm-hmm. and some of them are in fact proximate to sexism and we need to admit that all, all of that's fine. But I'm going to throw one out and you say, okay, that's more of a male trait or that's more of a female trait. Let's start with mercy. Is mercy more of a, 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 I think we generally think yeah. of that as a female trait, right? Yeah. Good. Authority. Yeah. Male. Male for sure. Yeah. Okay. I've just said two and neither one of you hesitated. No. <laughs> is there... Is there some sexism in there? Yeah, probably. Absolutely. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. But I made a big, long list. Like, yeah, it's a fun thought exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and what's interesting mm-hmm. is, so in other languages, like, you know, I grew up speaking Italian and I, that's too strong. When I was young, I learned Italian poorly, right? And every, like, table has a gender, right? And like, yes. like wall has a gender, right? Yes. Wisdom has a gender. And so do all of the virtues. And in, in scriptures, these are personified in, for, and I, again, not a scholar. I don't know biblical history. I don't know any of that stuff. But my understanding is that these are personified in female or male deities in ways that are really, really cool, right? So I started asking myself, now I'll give a quick example on authority. I teach students. That's obvious. Of course I teach students. I teach future teachers who are my students. So when I say my students, Mm -hmm. I think of future teachers. And one of the things that I consistently get pushback on is I tell them about the four parenting styles. 
there's authoritarian, there's neglectful, there's, I always forget the other one, the, you know, kind of enabling parent that's too nice and permissive. Kind of squishy. The permissive, there we go. And then at the top, in the top right-hand corner, I draw this matrix on the board, and the best one is authoritative. And one of my students raised their hand and said, could we change the name of that? I don't like that it has the word authority in it. Mm. And I thought, wow. That's millennial. <laughs> wow. You just said out loud something really, really big. And by the way, I think this is culturally true. Right now, we're in a moment where we, ha- we are haunted by the ghosts of the 20th century. We think of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, and we, we think of authority figures as a tremendous risk and danger. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure we're wrong to. I'm not saying that's bad. By the way, it's always a strong man government. It's never, you know, no, nobody ever says a strong woman government, right? It is a very male thing, and that's the yep. historical record. But that is what we tend to think of when we think about these male traits. And so I asked my student, I said, are there authority figures that are good? And she said, well... I don't know. I mean, that's really hard. And I said, hold on, whoa, 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 whoa. 99% of all of the authority figures you've ever interacted with are probably really good or they wouldn't still be authority figures. That 1% of the time is worth being really, really careful about. But the idea that most authority figures are bad is just not borne out in your lived experience. You drive on the right side of the street, not because somebody's compelling you to, but because it keeps you safe from the other people that are driving on the opposite side of the street. That's a form of authority, but we listen to it because it's good and helps us and protects us, mm-hmm. right? There are some people who are trying to say authority can occasionally be bad. Let's get rid of it all the time. Mm-hmm. By the way, I did a, a very back of the envelope, and I would love for somebody to do, to do a real study on this. I did a back of the envelope IMDb study where I looked up the top 20 films of the last 20 years, and I just looked at authority figures just by themselves. And I found something really interesting. And of course, I was writing this, so it may have been you know already my priors and my bias, but every father was a tyrant in his home. Every cop was crooked. Every cardinal from the Catholic Church was corrupt. When you went through and looked at all of these great movies, they were always implying that the authority figure was bad. Hmm. And that's quite striking to me, right? And by the way, I'm not saying that that isn't for good reason. We are in our social consciousness. We're coming out of these terrors, right? That's my best explanation is that we're coming out of it from that perspective. But what does that leave? Where does that leave you as a man? If you are trying to, you know, if you were to say, I want to be an authority in my home, people would look at you and say, you're either crazy or totally sexist. You brute of a man that you think you get to be an authority figure in the home. I didn't say that I'm an authority figure over my wife. I didn't say that I'm going to be an authoritarian. I am saying that I want to embrace the healthy side of masculinity, the healthy side of authority. And that's something that we've lost in our dialogue. That is not something that we're willing to talk about because we're afraid of getting it wrong. Fortunately, as a teacher of future teachers, I can hit the nail on the head and say, guys, the evidence is really clear that the authoritative teachers do better than the authoritarians or also the neglectful or also the appeasing parents. Like, You need to, if you're uncomfortable with this idea of authority, maybe teaching is not for you, but also maybe parenting and getting along in society and all of this stuff, right? We see police officers right now, and I, it breaks my heart some of the things that we're seeing. And I think it's good that we are having these conversations. But the answer to that is not to say, let's get rid of the police. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is to say, what does good authority look like? How Mm -hmm. can we have healthy, good examples of, of authority? And so that's the example that I give of both Return of the King right? I think as a classic example of everybody going, yeah, he gets to be king in a way that gets us excited where we go, yeah, he's a good authority figure. We like Aragorn. He's the good guy. But I think the same thing is true of Simba and his father Mufasa. So anyway, those are the two examples that you'd mentioned. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> Sorry, I go for a long time. That, no, that's No, no, no. That's it's, fantastic. It's, I'm taking it in. And you know, as, as I'm sitting here as a man, I'm thinking, yeah, I completely understand what that feels like to believe that embracing authority is going to make me a dictator or a jerk or unsafe or not a good mm. person. And, and I know in our, our relationship, like you've pushed and asked like me to, to like lead out with more authority. Like there's something mm. about that for you as a woman. 
has felt really secure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I have a lot of cultural examples of like what that looks like in a healthy way. Like you're saying to your point, Ben. I'm going to be rude and jump in. I talk too much, but I, I have to jump in on this. I was just convinced before I got married that most of our conversations were going to be, honey, you need to calm down. You're not the boss here. We do things together. We do things as equal. And so I was ready for that. And by the way, I've tried really hard to be, you know, filled with equanimity in our marriage. And, you know, I do the dishes and, you know, those were things that I really got from culture and those were good things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was surprised how many times my wife has come to me and said, I need you to lead out. Right. Mm -hmm. I need you to take this on and take the bull by the horns. And I, I need you to do this. This is something I want you to do. And that's not true for every couple and that's okay. And so if it's not true for that couple, I, I want to respect that. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, we're both coming to the table with assumptions and expectations and you know, our families are going to be different. Here's what I envision you being. And by the way, it feels really good when she's like, hey, I want you to lead out. In my case, it's family prayer and scripture study. And you know, it just feels really good when I say, all right, let's do scriptures together. And my kids go, okay, that's dad's job. That's what he does. And you know, when I was growing up, we had a very different set of expectations in my, my parents' home than in my home. And that's okay. And I mm -hmm. think having those conversations is good. Right. But I don't think that it's the case that I'm stepping back and going, oh, every single case of difference needs to be, you know, either I'm a sexist for assuming that I'm, I'm in charge. I'm not in charge. I don't feel that way. My wife and I co-lead our families together as equal partners. But that means division of some responsibilities and having those conversations has been really, really healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I see a lot with, I work with a lot of couples in my clinical practice who are going through some sort of a, a major crisis or a major betrayal, a sexual betrayal generally. And what's interesting is that in the recovery process, of course, there's a really, for most couples, there's a real clear understanding at the beginning that, you know, it's the person who broke the trust. It's their job, usually the guy, it's usually his job to spend a prolonged period of time rebuilding trust, creating safety. But then they kind of reach this point where there is this expectation of like partnership, and now we're going to work together and build something. And what's interesting is in that process, a lot of men, you know, they, they've essentially lost their hearts, right? They've, through years of lying and hiding and shame and playing small and avoidance and manipulation, all these things that were part of the secret life or part of dysfunctional patterns or abuse or trauma or things that they're, they're trying to heal from. They sort of show up in the marriage finally after rebuilding some level of trust. And to a degree, they're somewhat kind of almost like passive and mm -hmm. scared and unsure. And if they've really done a good job of, of rebuilding some safety and trust, they almost are scared to sort of be strong and be a presence and like have a voice and open up and talk about things, confront things. It's Push like back on things. And it's almost like they out. can't figure out why their wife doesn't want doesn't respect him, doesn't feel safe with him, doesn't feel close to him. And it's like, there's this next piece of like, you know, what they would say is like, be a man. And they're like, but for a lot of these guys are like, that sounds really sexist. That sounds really scary. Like, what is that? Like it's 2023. Like what, you know, mm -hmm. so I think that there's this piece of like a lot of men, not only losing their hearts through, you know, missteps and, and secret, you know, secrets and other, you know, betraying their own conscience and values and so on. But then when they sort of arrive at this place, there's also now not, there's not only like a lack of confidence because of how they've been, but there's also not a clear path for how to be. And I think that that is a big part of why I wanted to have this discussion of like, where do we go from there? How do we help guys know how to step into what that really looks like? And so this idea of in search of heroic masculinity, in search of embracing the things that really men can do and do well, and they can really be a strength and a blessing to their marriages and families. 
it's, I think it's a great conversation to have. And I don't think it's sexist at all. I don't. I think it's important because I, I, I hear I, this stuff in my office all the time. Mm. Like they're longing for it, but everybody's almost afraid to like admit it. <laughs> well, and I should say too, sorry, Jody, were you going to jump in? Because I, no. I can give you a second. No, um, no, go ahead, Ben. Thank I, you. Uh, first, let me just say that I think the work you do is holy work. I am grateful that there are good people out there doing it. I mean, I can feel it just in the way you talk about it. And th this is actually why I opened with like, I'm not an expert and I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just a guy, right? Who wrote a thing. But I also think like, again, like this is me taking that leap. This is me saying like, hey, I don't want to just be a useless guy in the back of the room with with ideas. Right. I want to put them out there. And if they're wrong, challenge them. Like, I don't mind. I, that, that That's better. There's a, a saying that I heard and I can't remember who said it, but they basically said, I don't want to live life with a clean jersey. Right. Mm -hmm. The whole point is to get out there and make mistakes and take risks and do things. You mentioned something in particular that I think is quite, quite powerful. And I want to speak only for myself in this case. The, the scriptures that I, that, you know, form my worldview, I guess, the story that I tell myself, it was, it was funny the other day in, in class, I told them about the art of the story and how important it is for kids to get great stories. And actually, now's a good time to bring this up. There's a researcher at BYU who wanted to look at princess movies. And do princess, you know, Disney princess movies, do they make us more sexist? And that was the concern was that, you know, we're, we're kind of making women into these objects. And so then men are going to treat women as just a conquest and, and stuff like that. Now, she knows her research better than I do. And I would encourage you to look at the research herself, because I'm going to oversimplify a little bit. Suffice it to say, that's not what she found. In fact, there were a number of elements on which men actually tended to embrace toxic masculinity less as a result of listening to these stories. Now that's a fascinating finding to me. Yeah. If I want to raise good sons, I like it is not only not bad, it might be a good thing for me to show them some of these movies in which the man comes to the rescue. These are the stories that form a part of our psyche where we say, I want to be the one rushing in and rescuing the damsel in distress. And then and, and obviously sometimes she's going to rescue me too, right? And and it's you know, we don't want to play so much to stereotypes that it becomes a sexism thing. But on the other hand, boy, do I feel amazing when I think of myself as my wife's Prince Charming? Do I think of myself as amazing when I write a story for myself that is worth telling? That's a really cool idea. Now, another another research finding that is quite compelling. This was in the Deseret News a few months back. And by the way, I'd recommend you, you link to these in your show notes. If you're going to link to anything, these, these ones are really good. They looked at gender stereotypes and found that women, and I would imagine it's the same for men, are a lot happier when they conform to the, the gender norm. Now there's some stuff in there. There's some real stuff to grapple with, right? What if people who feel like they're a little bit outside the norm or they don't really conform and it's not something, it's not really a choice. That's just kind of who they are or whatever. Yeah, I, I hear you. But what we've always said in the past is it takes courage to not conform. But what you actually find when you look at the, the self-reported survey results is that the people who rate themselves as most willing to do scary hard things are also the people who are conforming the most to these gender norms and these gender ideals about mm. femininity and masculinity. What I would say to any guy who's struggling on this is to say, okay, you need to be a rational actor here. You don't just get to say, well, I'm just going to work out hard and then curse at people. And But because I work out, I'm manly and that makes it okay. No, you're, you're a doofus, man. Like you don't, working out <laughs> it does not cancel out that you curse at people. But if you find joy in working out, awesome, that can be part of being manly. That's not my part. I'm, I'm, that's not who I am. But I can promise you that what your wife considers manly is a conversation that you should have. And it probably involves things like taking really good care of your kids and being there for them. It probably includes helping out around the house. And I think that's a really healthy thing to have a conversation about. It, it includes leading out in family stuff. One of the ones that I'm increasingly passionate about lately is that I feel for myself that leading out in protecting my kids from social media, from online pornography, from like, there's a new form of this that I'm calling ideological pornography, where it's just like you click on a video about politics and like five clicks later, you're already into like this weird radicalizing, like 
very skewed, you know, we would call it fake news, but that's, that's now got too much baggage, right? As a father, I feel like it's partially my job. And I think it's my wife's job too, don't get me wrong. But something that I have felt lately is that when we talk about protecting, we're talking about protecting my kids, not just from a bully at school, but also from the kinds of things that are going to hit them on the computer screen. That feels holy to me. That feels like part of my work in a way that I feel very comfortable with. And so maybe, maybe the answer to this is you write down, okay, what does it mean to be a, a, a manly man in my home in a way that I feel really comfortable with? And then I talk with my wife about it and say, hey, what, what brings you a lot of joy? And by the way, as I, as I dug into this manliness stuff and masculinity, one of the things I realized is that a lot of masculinity isn't defined by men at all. It's defined by women because it's really all about how do I look good for the people that I want to love me, right? I want to find a maid. I want to get married someday. And so women end up defining a lot of what masculinity is, and that's okay. That's a good thing. So I talk to my wife and I say, hey, I want to feel like the, just the manliest man in the world. What are the things that I do that make you go, wow, that was awesome. That's my hero of a husband doing something awesome. And that, that I think, is, is a conversation that more people can have. Yeah. I want to backtrack to something you said there. Uh, it made me think of this concept of mental load mm. that's talked about with women in families, especially where a lot of the stress and strain that women are, are dealing with is having to think of everything, having to keep track of everything. Mm -hmm. And it's emotional labor. And it's often talked about, and I, you know, I don't have any research studies off the top of my head on it, but I do know that it's been researched and talked about a lot, written about, which is that by far, even women who work outside the home and still have children and, and domestic responsibilities, et cetera, are still carrying the, the lion's share of the, of the emotional labor, not to mention probably a lot of the actual physical labor in the home. And as I'm hearing you talk about this, just being aware of protecting your kids from online dangers and ideological stuff and other things like that, there, to me, it's like part of healthy masculinity, part of being a man in terms of this element of protecting, for example, is really around carrying that mental load. So that is your job to at least be aware of it, to care about it, to think of it, to look for it to plan for it, whatever areas you feel like you want to be protective. And that takes a tremendous load off of your wife. It takes a tremendous load off of, I mean, it's something that's being handled and it's, it's one of those abstract emotional labor, mental load kinds of things that may just either not get picked up and get missed completely, or she may feel a tremendous amount of stress over. But I th think that a lot of it is about awareness. And I think of, you know, we love, a lot of men love, you know, a movie like Braveheart. And I'm thinking, right, freedom was on William Wallace's mind. He was thinking about it. He was aware of it. He was paying attention. He was seeing how things were going down and he did something about it. And it may have been on, you know, other people's minds as well. But in terms of what I think we love about it is that he didn't back down from that idea. It was, it was ever present. He was preoccupied with it. And I just think in terms of having a conversation with your spouse, to me, that's a very manly thing, if you want to call it that, of being able to approach and say, these things are on my mind. I care about these things. What do you think of them? Are there things I'm missing? And having those discussions where I think a lot of times... I think a lot of men just are sort of like, you know, yes, dear, or whatever you want to do, honey. And I don't think that feels very safe no. to women at all. No, it doesn't. And I don't think it's productive long-term. So one of the things that I tell, I, I joke with my students, I'm not scared if they come in with a testimony concern. I'm not scared if they come in with a scholastic concern, but if they come in and say the word roommates, I'm running for cover, right? <laughs> it, it, those are the scary ones, right? It's just terrifying. And most of the time, it's just this idea that niceness is Christ-likeness. And so one of the things I talk about in my classes is, I'm sorry, but if, if you have not learned how to address uncomfortable things, that is going to affect your marriage and your mm -hmm. life. 
that is a healthy and important critical piece of, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I, I can, and I think I suspect that the research is on my side. I haven't researched that specifically, but I think conflict avoidance is never as important as conflict resolution, right? Being able to mm-hmm. talk through things and having those conversations and having an right. opinion and disagreeing and it's okay. Mm-hmm. But, but all of that is premised on the fact that you love each other and that we're still going to get along and it's going to be fine. And, you know, my wife and I know what things we discuss where we have to take our wedding rings off first, right? We, we have certain, you know, <laughs> d- debate topics. They're really weird in our case. Apparently the FDA is what gets us really spicy <laughs> Our marriage. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of weird. Normal people, it's like board games or, you know, like other things. But for us, it's the FDA. I don't, I don't know. But having that conversation where we can say like, hey, I love you and I care about you. And by the way, I'd like to bring this up in a way that is safe for you, but also where we can talk about it together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one where, let, let me actually add another one. So that the Simba example, I am concerned. I, we talked about authority earlier. And I, I think there is good reason to be afraid of the authoritarian nature of life and society and culture. But one of the things that I'm seeing increasingly in public schools and families and a lot of other places is that it feels like it's more noble and enlightened to not take a stand on people's behavior. That the good Um, way, the good path is to say, hey, it's not my life. I'm not going to judge. I don't think that's the right path long term. Okay. And so the example that I give in the article is about the Uvalde, Texas shooter. His father said after the fact, you don't know him, please don't judge him. To which my response is, I'm going to push back on that. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to judge you and I am not trying to judge him and I'm not trying to be play God. But if your first response to something of that caliber of terror is to say, don't you dare judge, I think our society has gone to a dark place. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has always in my mind been a very masculine trait has always been this idea of moral accountability, right? We see our bishop, we see our stake president, at least, at least in, in, you know, in my background. I think that there is a part of being a father for me that has always felt like I'm going to talk to my kids about right and wrong. I'm going to talk to my kids about things that they shouldn't do and should do when it comes to dating and sexuality and all of that stuff. And to your point, Jeff, I think this is really interesting. How much of the mental load issue, I don't mean to be unkind when I say this, how much of the mental load issue is a result of trying to teach men how to be better, but instead what they got the message on was, no matter what you do, you're going to get it wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost like a student of mine explained to me, she's on the autism spectrum. And she said, I want you to imagine that you're at the crosswalk or sorry, at the four-way stop with a stoplight, but you're colorblind and you can't tell the colors. That's kind of how social interactions are for her. That's how she explained it. And I really like that. Yeah. And we actually talked about it. She said, now I want you to imagine like boys are now getting signals that are telling them go, but also stop. And how dare you all at the same time, no matter what you do, it's wrong Mm -hmm. and it's confusing. And like... And in some ways it's good because you can suss out like, okay, what do I actually believe? Which I think is healthy. Yeah. But there is no cultural definition of what it means to be a good man. And there used to be as imperfect and overly simplified as that definition was. And so one of the things I would say to men is like, hey, decide for yourself, decide with your wife. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some stuff in there, but you must decide. You have to have the conversation and decide what does it mean to me to be that kind of a man? Yeah. So listening to this, I'm just thinking about our path that way. And I, and I remember how important it was to me at a very young age to be very capable and independent. And I took all of those values with me into our marriage. And I, I wanted that. There was something about it that felt akin to freedom to me until it became burdensome. And then I was living an unwittingly living a life where I had taken on so many things because I could and I felt good at it. And at some point and in some way, maybe it made me feel alive as a person. But then I had all the things and it was crushing me. And I also 
because I had valued so much of that independently, I hadn't given Jeff those opportunities to show up and and be there and provide safety and structure and and form and movement and and so as in the partnership, I wasn't creating a room for him to do that either. And I don't know that we had many formal conversations about it at that point. I mean, we have since then many times, but I think that spouses can indirectly cause problems there, can Mm -hmm. make it hard for there to be growth. And part of that, and I'm going to say this speaking from experience, part of that is a need to just relinquish control and let him show up and to be able to allow for that influence, which matters tremendously, but it's difficult. It's difficult when I feel that I am so capable and I love my way of seeing and understanding all the details and knowing how well everything can fit together. Although I am, I am horrible at pulling it all off because I am just one person, but I'm in a partnership. <laughs> and so part of that is a letting go and allowing. Right. For you to show up that way, Jeff. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, my, you know, sort of my understanding of what it meant to be a man or masculine coming into this relationship was being deferential and being Mm -hmm. a nice person and like not threatening. And so I wasn't claiming that space for myself. I wasn't stepping into that space and saying, hey, let me have that back. Let me, (laughs) let me run with this or let me. And I think we've come to that place where, you know, where we've, we've worked through this over years and years of marriage. But initially, you're right. There, and I think that's maybe the luxury to a degree of like really traditional gender roles mm-hmm. is that you don't ever have you don't really have these conversations. But it can also be really harmful because you don't have these conversations. Right. Correct. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which I think we we were pushing back on. Yeah. But without having the conversation, and maybe no. without a, like a real awareness, because here we are approaching fifty, and I'm like, man, to like have had this understanding so many years ago, we just would have work together (laughs) so much better as a team. Right. Right. It's, yeah. One of the things that pops to my mind as I'm teaching an educational psychology class, we have a debate every semester. It's really fun. Do you believe in rewards and punishments in your classroom? And again, we have this very strong tie, this cultural default to like, no, those are bad. We should, kids are good. If we just, you know, teach them well, then they'll just be good. And that's, of course, totally bogus. And you actually have to teach kids to be good. And like, they're all psychopaths and it's okay. But like, that's <laughs> yeah. no, a thing, right? Yeah. Like, I, it's, it's I great. have children of my own. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it you is. know, like, here's the thing if you say that, when I say that to college kids, they laugh uncomfortably. Like, what is he saying? You say that oh. to parents and they laugh with full smiles, right? Yes. Like, they know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's so, funny. One of the examples, though, that I like to give is, I don't think behaviorism in terms of rewards and punishments is always the right way to go. You can actually over reward behavior. And I I think that's valid. But how many of us give attention, which is a form of reward to all of the negatives that people are bringing to us? Mm. So you have a child in your classroom who is acting out and they know that Mr. Pacini is going to say, Billy, I told you not to do that. I'm giving you attention right now because you shouldn't do that. Why are you doing that? Is it for the attention that I'm giving you? It probably is, isn't it? <laughs> and now all of a sudden you've told to Billy, keep doing that again the next time. On the other hand, think about how many times somebody that you love has done something that you so appreciated and you either didn't do anything, mm. you gave them no comment, or even deeper, you punished what should have been a reward. So for example, there are hundreds of these. <laughs> Your husband tries his hand at cooking. Let's assume that Jeff is terrible. I, I, I can already tell he's probably a very good chef, but we'll pretend in this example that he's a, t- a terrible chef. Thanks, and he man. comes up. To, <laughs> it's because you have very, you have very well-groomed facial hair and I'm jealous. And so I'm just putting this out there right now. I have not been able to grow facial hair in my entire life. And I tried once and it was a disaster. So 
Let's imagine that Jeff goes and tries to cook in the kitchen and it's a total disaster, Mm -hmm. but he tried. Yeah. What do you say? You reward the effort. You don't reward the outcome. Right. Too many of us are really, really good at saying, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. He probably knows it's terrible, right? If it's a terrible dish, but do you want him to try to cook again? Oh, right. If you want him to try to cook again, then you pull him close. You say, I love you so much. This is disgusting. And I think I love you all the more for it. <laughs> right? Yes. And you thank clarify. You. And thank you. Now think about that in terms of everything, because some of it, it's a train wreck. Some of it is you don't take out the trash the right way. Is that mm-hmm. really the conversation that we need to be having? Or, hey, thank you for taking out the trash. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side, and as therapists, you probably know, we learned this from a CD, right? When we were first married and it was really powerful. It was a therapist explaining how his marriage worked. And he said, my marriage is very different from my parents' marriage. In my marriage, this means, what's that smell? But in my parents' marriage, this means, why haven't you taken out the trash yet? It's been two hours. And it's about forms of communication and how we say our expectations to the other person. And then the therapist on the CD goes, I'll bet that most of you just, how many of you, how many of your parents, your dad took out the trash? And about half of them raised their hand. He said, congratulations. And now keep your hands up if you're wondering why the, da- why the man in the relationship isn't taking out the trash. And everybody starts laughing in the crowd because they realized, oh my gosh, I was defaulting to this expectation from my family. Mm-hmm. And we never had that conversation. Right. Now, here's my point in all of this. I don't think that traditional, we had traditional gender roles. Some of them, there was some utility in them, but there was a lot that just didn't really work. And so then we defaulted away from them. And now we're starting to realize, actually, that default is also simplistic and imperfect. And maybe instead of saying, what are the right gender roles? Because that's a dumb question. We say, let's have a conversation. And as long as the two of us are both on board and it's deeply fulfilling to both of us, it's fine. I think the message that a lot of, a friend put it this way, and it's a little bit sarcastic, but there are a number of men who have said, well, based on what I've learned from feminism, that means I need to let my wife work and provide for the family. And if that's the sacrifice I need to make, that's the sacrifice <laughs> I need to make, right? Like it's, it's kind of silly, but like, is that really the message we're trying to send here? Right. Yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be afraid of, you know, I, I, I can't say anything against my wife working. She was, she's, she's an audiologist and she makes me look really smart when, when we go to parties because she's <laughs> the one with a doctorate and I'm not. And she was the reason I was able to be a school teacher because you can't make it very far on one income that way. I love the fact that she worked, but never once in a moment did I ever feel like I didn't have some need to contribute. From an LDS perspective, doctrinally, I think that these confusing messages, and I I, I don't want to blame feminism because there's a lot of good in feminism, and also feminism is not one monolithic thing, right? Like, let's Mm -hmm. not be too simplistic. But the messages that men are, are receiving, and I think the same is true of women, are not one unified message. And so you end up having a lot of conversations of like, I don't know what to do, but whatever I do, I'm sure it will be wrong, so I'll just do less. Mm -hmm. Instead of, Mm -hmm. I don't know what our family will look like, but I know that in our family, we will both have to consecrate our efforts. Maybe in our family, I will do, my wife does the finances. When I was growing up, my dad did the finances and it was just not, and I don't care. I don't like doing finances. I'm totally fine with her doing it, right? Like that's not some big ask on my, you know, traditional gender role stuff. But on the other hand, there are things that I do that are a relief for her because she knows that I'll take care of them. And that's really healthy. It's the mental load piece. It's being able to say, no, I've got this part. You don't need to worry about it. And sometimes I think I have it. And then I make a mistake and I go to her and she said, you know what, why don't I take that one? And you can take this other thing instead. And that works out fine too. But divvying it up in that way, I think has been a much more helpful and healthy path for us. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes down to just being able to have, well, I guess to, in my mind to two things, definitely being able to have the conversations so that both men and women can talk about what 
heroic masculinity looks like and how it can show up in ways that are meaningful and fulfilling to both, but also a matter of courage on his part and trust on her part Mm -hmm. to make room for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I loved your question, Ben. I love that question you asked about, you know, having for guys to have the courage to ask their wife, like what, you know, not being afraid to have their wife in some ways help them define what healthy masculinity looks like for them. Because I feel like being a man in a vacuum to me is no fun, mm-hmm. right? I want to be a man to show up for the people I love and, and would do anything for that I would die for, my mm-hmm. wife, my kids. And so, you know, why wouldn't I care about what they think about that or how that shows up for them or what that looks like for them? And so I, I think that there's a lot of value in that because I think a lot of the times, like I have to go off into the wilderness for some rite of passage and figure out what it means to be a man, and then come back and they should just accept that. <laughs> well, so I have two other thoughts on this. One is I cannot tell you how important it is for guys to have good friends. And I mean close friends, but I also mean friends that teach them what it means to be a good man. Yep. Right. We all claim that we're just going to talk about it in our, in our, in our relationship and that, that that'll be enough. No, none of us actually work that way. It is necessary and important and that should be the primary focus. Yes, absolutely. But if you think you're not, you know, accidentally swallowing all of the messages that the world and, and media and social media are sending you, that's just not the case. You can't choose to cut the strings, but you can choose to see them. They are there. There are things affecting you and influencing you. Choose who is going to influence you. Choose good and decent noble men who, when you say, hey, I really love that guy. He's the kind of guy I would want to be. Great. Follow that guy. I think that's really, really important. The second thing that I would say is an old rule in classrooms. We always like to say that you need to reward four times for every negative consequence. Now, that's a made up number, right? It could be five to one. It could be six to one. In fact, a BYU faculty member did something really cool where they actually tried to see what happens if you go nine to one more positive than negative. It was like off the charts better, right? So I don't think it's like just four to one, but it's a good way to think in your mind. The tendency we have is to focus on the things they're doing wrong instead of the things they're doing right. And I really do genuinely believe as a future teacher, but also as a husband or a wife or anybody else in a a relationship, it changes you. It's not about changing them. When I look for what my wife is doing well, I am happier with who she is and I am happier in our relationship and it changes our discussions so much better. So instead of saying, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, I say, you know what? Of the three things that bothered me, I only get to pick one and I've got to find four really, really good things that I loved about what she did. And in that process, it's not faking, right? In that process, I go, man, am I lucky? Man, do I have the best wife in the world? I look at all of those things that she's doing and I go, my goodness, she is great. And then the conversation about the thing that bothered me shifts from, I didn't like how you did that. I mean, when I get it right, which is not all of the time, just to be clear, it shifts from, here's the thing you did that bothered me to, hey, I wonder if we could set a target together. And I want you to tell me something that I can do better that just knocks your socks off. And I, I want to do the same for you. Something that you just go, man, I'm so glad that I'm married to my spouse. This also gets in, and I don't know if now is a good time to talk about narrating the negative or not. I feel like I should, probably should have started with this and now we're, we're all the way near the end. But if now works, I can talk about that for a second. It's up to you. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this please. Is great. So one of the things that I am really passionate about and really concerned about is something I call narrating the negative. And I'm going to explain it with a a little experiment I do in my classes, but also in my office. So in my office, there's a little bell and it's one of those, you know, hotel bells that, you know, ring for assistance. It's the door hop bell. And so you you ding it. And what's amazing is I, I used to leave it out on my desk and everybody would come by and ding it, even though I was already right there. And so I thought it was kind of funny. And I, I just noticed that people want to ding the bell. 
So then one day I decided to be evil and put up a little sign. And the sign says, do not under any circumstances ring the bell. <laughs> and oh, um, just asking for her. And so guess what? The number of people ringing the bell went up, right? Yes, so this is, yes. This is like, very, like, in fact, they would sit, they would walk in and they would see the sign and they, their eyes would get big and they'd say, but what will happen? I said, right. I, I can't tell you. That's secret. If you want to find out, you'll have to ring the bell. And it gets them every time, right? They, they, they get very excited about ringing this bell. So I built this whole experiment out and I, I made it several stages. So I'll, I'll give you the very short version. So when they come in, they ring the bell. And then I bring out another sign and a bowl of jelly beans. And it says, do not under any circumstances eat the jelly beans. <laughs> here's what's interesting. I've had two people who have not eaten the jelly beans who have rung the bell. Both of them who have an allergy to jelly beans, who really just do not like or like cannot eat jelly beans. Everybody else, they know what's coming. Most of them already know what is ha going to happen when they eat the jelly bean. They go, oh, but you're going to make me, aren't you? I said, I'm not making you do anything. I told you not to do the thing. They will reach into the thing. They'll eat a jelly bean and go, yep, just like I thought. These are the nasty jelly beans. Did you buy them on Amazon? And I say, yes, I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh the bean boozled ones? These are the bean boozled ones, right. Oh, and every, yeah, yeah. It works every time. Now, at the simplistic level, this is a great a lesson for my students, right? They need to know. And this is the joking way that I say it. If you want to put 20 fingers in 20 nostrils, put a big sign up at the front of your classroom that says, do not pick your nose. There is no faster way to achieve 20 kids picking their nose than a big sign that says, hey, whatever you do, don't pick your don't nose. Don't do this. Yeah. But there's a second piece to this that I think if I stop there, then I'm doing the same thing myself. If I stop there, then you'll go, got it. Great. No, don't put up signs that say don't put up <laughs> other signs. And so no, and then they just don't put up rules at all. And they don't put up any signs. The key is that you need to give them something to aim for, not just to not aim for. So as an example, one of my favorite behavior intervention strategies is Lee Cantor's narrate the positive. And here's, it's literally this simple. You walk into a classroom and you're trying to get everybody to, to be writing on their paper. I could say, Bobby, why aren't you writing? But now I have given Bobby attention, which is the first problem. And second, I've normalized bad behavior in the ears of everybody else in the room. So everybody just heard that Bobby is off task and they're now looking at Bobby instead of writing their own work. So instead, what I do is I say, I see that Jeff is working on his work. I see that Jody is working on her work. I see that Benjamin is working on his work. And Bobby looks around and goes, I want that attention. And he turns around and he starts working on his work. And I say, I see Bobby has worked on his, is working on his work. Good job, Bobby. And he lives for that attention, right? When we talk about narrating the negative, this is what I'm talking about. And our society is really good at it right now. Think of what it means to be toxically masculine. This is the only thing I hear about. If I were to, to tell you, how many news articles I see about toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. 10 to 1, more negative than positive. Easily. I'm not even looking to get neutral though. I have set my sights something far higher. I want 10 to 1 more positive than negative. Let's have these conversations about what it means to be a good man. And by the way, we've always been having them. The way we have them is through our stories. The way we have them is through our movies and our literature and our poems and our, our romance novels and all of this stuff. And that's how we were meant to have them. That's why stories are so powerful. So if you're looking to be a good man, don't think deeply about, you know, revising your whole routine and, and throwing everything. Just go and read a, a story about a good man, a good book. And so I, I told my students this, and one of them raised her hands and said, is that why we're supposed to read stories to kids in classrooms? Is this why? Because it gives them a social story that they need to follow? And I looked at her, I said, well, yeah, it is. But why do you think they have you read your scriptures? And I audibly heard four different people gasp in the room like this was the first time it had ever occurred to them. <laughs> We're building heroes when we tell people to read certain stories. And I think that's a really beautiful idea. Write your own story, but also go and find the best stories. And by the way, Jeff, you were, you were mentioning earlier, are there people who have come back from horrors? 
Absolutely. In fact, some of the richest stories that I know of, right? Dante couldn't go straight to heaven. He had to go through hell first. The atonement is based on the assumption that mistakes are going to be made. That doesn't mean that they're good. That doesn't mean I encourage people to aim for them. But Jesus is very good at working with people who have been through darkness. That's his whole job. And so if you think that, and by the way, I would say sometimes people say, write your own story. Well, okay. How about co-author your own story? Because he's a much better writer than you are. And you're going to have the experience, I think, where you put in your best efforts and you're going to have a fantastic editor who says, you know, I think what you're really aiming for is this. And you'll look at the thing that you wrote and go, my goodness, but that is so much better than anything I could have written by myself. That I think is, is the point of these stories. That's the point of why we tell them to each other and why it's so important. And so if you've got a wife, I love this, by the way. If you, so if, let's say you've got a wife who's trying to help her husband be a better man, right? Mm-hmm. Or her sons. And she feels like there's this, like, it's really what, you know, what I hear you saying is find good stories, bring those into your home, inspire the men, they'll perk up, right? I mean, I know how I felt watching Braveheart for the first time, for example. You know, I'm beating my chest and I mean, it just, I felt like I wanted to like live for something, die for something. Like I just felt like such a strong power. And there's so many other stories that have moved me like that. That's just one quick example. But if a guy feels like he's been gutted by his secret life or by choices, or he's, he's totally face planted and not been the man he needs to be stories, examples. And it's interesting because a lot of, I did group work for a lot of years and the groups that really, really struggled is where there weren't good stories happening inside the group, where the guys were all bottom feeding. And I look back on that now, as I'm even having this conversation, this moment right now, thinking, how could I have brought in better stories, even if they weren't from the guys in the group? Could that have made a huge difference? Just stories. I think that, by the way, all of my experience as an educator says, I would rather, everybody talks about class size. Listen, I get the class size matters. If I've had 40 kids in a classroom, it's exhausting. That's a lot of grading. And you got you to think really hard about how you teach kids. I would take a class of 40 kids who are decent to amazing over a class of 10 kids who are rough any day of the week, because there's just a difference in feeling when you've got some good examples and good people in that room. Yeah. Right. And so whether you build the groups deliberately, whether you bring in great literature of amazing men and like, you know, manly man stories, look, there's a reason why I don't, let me go back a second. We were talking about sexism before. I think there's good reason to be skeptical of a lot of this stuff. And I'm, like I said, I'm, I've now probably commented on it five or six times because I want to be really careful about, I don't want people thinking, well, if I grunt a lot and I work out and I, I yell at things, then I'm, I'm being masculine. That is the cheapest rendition of masculinity that I know of. And when you look at all of the stories about kings like Aragorn, who can weep and say poetry when their best friend, who was also an enemy at one point dies, but also are willing to kill orcs and do whatever is required to save little hobbits, you know, it's so much deeper than just grunt and lift weights. If those things help you, by all means, grunt and lift weights, that's fine. But what society is portraying was never real true masculinity in the first place. And you're going to have to go to much deeper, much more special stories, stories that are, I don't know, more timeless, right? I, I think about scripture stories. I think about the mythologies that we all, you know, kind of grow up with, those kinds of things. But absolutely, I think finding the stories that are meaningful, you know, in, in the research literature, I think they call them pure effects. What does it do to you to have somebody in your group who's a really, really good peer influence. And I think this is a profoundly important thing, right? So, and this is why I would say, not a therapist. I don't know anything about this stuff. But when my students come in and they say, hey, I've got roommate issues. I say, okay, did you, did you choose your roommates on purpose? No, nah, I just kind of signed up for them. Well, can this be a lesson to you? Choose roommates that are going to make you better and choose to be a roommate that makes everybody else better. What is that going to look like? Be the group member who's going to be the very best that you can be. 
because I think that's essential. And by the way, that's partially why we choose spouses the way we do, because we want people who lift us and make us want to be better. Mm. Mm -hmm. Were you going to say something earlier after he finished with the po narrating the positive? I don't remember. Oh, it's okay. gone, so it's okay. You had you had that look on your that face, look, like oh, but I that's, got something. That's okay. This the, I yeah. love where the conversation's gone. So yeah, I agree. I think we do need healthy models for masculinity like that. And I agree with you that like sometimes when we talk about it in these kind of gendered ways, I think we need to, and we also need to expand the conversation and not leave it to people's stereotypes. Kind of like you said, the taking the trash out example, where we say that sort of generic "be a man" that could mean ten things to ten people. And I think that we have to have healthy conversations around what that looks like mm -hmm. today in our own lives. Our, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I should say, toxic masculinity is real. I've seen mm -hmm. it. I'm not, that's not my argument. But the answer to toxic masculinity is heroic masculinity, right? So right. when I see a friend who says, men don't show emotion, stop crying. And they say that to their son, mm. right? They have a bad understanding of what it means to be masculine. I don't know of anybody who, re now, I, I will say, so stoicism. Is some amount of emotional stoicism a healthy thing? Right now in society, we're in a very like, let's validate the heck out of anybody. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be authentic. Let's share everything. I think that there is something heroic and noble about saying, you know what? I'm going through a thing. Some of this I need to talk to somebody about. And some of this I'm just going to, I'm going to get help because I need help. I'm going to get a therapist or I'm going to talk to a friend. Yeah. And some of it is also just stuff that there is a line there where I can keep some of it to myself because it's more productive. Right. So when I think about, for example, there, there was a great study a few years ago that found that if you have a really happy neighbor, you owe him 300 bucks at the end of your life because he's probably made you, you live longer and, and be a little healthier. And I don't know how to calculate this stuff. It sounds like voodoo to me, right? There's no way that you can actually calculate this. But the basic premise is that who you surround yourself with is really valuable. And if somebody is happy all the time and they, they put goodness out into the universe, that's a really healthy and good thing. One of the things that I have tried to do is to be very deliberate with the way that I share. I'm not saying that I hide things. I have had therapists in the past. I'm sure that I will again in the future. And there's nothing about my life that feels embarrassed about that. I think it's useful and healthy. And there are probably more men who need therapy than who need to stop talking about their feelings, if I can be clear. On the other side, I also think that there is something holy and beautiful in being able to say, you know, I'm being deliberate right now. I could choose to share this on social media, but I'm not sure it would be useful for anybody else. And it wouldn't make me happier either. So I'm going to withhold and I will find a way to either talk about it deliberately or I will journal about it instead. By the way, this is a fun finding in my class. I, I like to do pop psychology versus real psychology. And this is one of my favorites. Does venting make you feel better? And mm. the research evidence on this is no. Kvetching makes you feel worse. You just get more angry. Uh, punching pillows just makes you more likely to punch things next time something comes by, which I find to be a really fun countercultural finding. And so my students say, well, then what should I do? He said, well, you can journal instead because journaling has all of the positives without any of the negatives. Journaling mm -hmm. is productive because you're talking to yourself and you won't buy your own story. You won't buy <laughs> the garbage that you're selling because you'll write it and be like, oh, they were so mean. Well, I guess they weren't really that mean. I guess some of it was me. And all of a sudden you're having a meaningful conversation with yourself and because a friend is going to go, oh, that sounds awful. I'll bet they're the worst. Should we throw darts at a picture of them? Buy a picture. Let's do it together. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it's just you in the journal, you eventually start getting into something that's a right. little bit more honest. And I think that's, that's valuable too. So anyway. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Just full of great ideas, hopeful things, and skills that we can build and practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. I love the challenge to look for and find and talk about stories and examples of what feel, like what looks and feels like healthy masculinity instead of just saying, don't be toxic. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's a huge takeaway for me in this conversation. I mean, in fact, this morning I saw on the news that, you know, I, I, yeah, it's Super Bowl yesterday, I didn't see it, but I, but I guess during the national anthem when Chris Stapleton, who sang the national anthem in this really emotional way, I mean, just like Chris Stapleton sings, the camera zoomed in on the face of the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm. And the tear comes down, a visible tear is coming down his face, right? Oh, Do you my. see this, Ben, in the news? Yeah. Wow. And I mean, that made the news. Wow. That made the news. A male Somebody football coach responding to having emotion, emotional, like mm-hmm. they could not take the camera off him. Mm. And I thought, huh, there's a conversation. There's yeah, no kidding. <laughs> there's something in that that reminds me of Aragorn weeping over his fallen comrade, right? Right. Yeah. And, well, right. in fact, if I can be honest, I think much of patriotism, when people get really upset about treatment of the flag, typically it's not, sometimes it's just rah rah jingoism, but sometimes, and in my experience, it's because they served with people who, who fought for that flag. Yeah. And, and there's, there's something about that, you know, patriotism and weeping for fallen comrades, those are not that separate of, of things. Yeah. Right. Right. And I, I was like, man, I would love to talk to that guy. I want to understand what was happening for him. Yeah. Like, yeah. what does that mean? I mean, on the world stage where you're supposed to be stoic and tough, and this is a yeah. violent football game and and you're going to win. You don't want to show weakness. And here he is having this really authentic moment, feeling something very deeply. I was moved by it. I just thought it was amazing. And I, those are the kinds of stories I want to see more of. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I want to add one thought. I've been, I've tried to be humble because like I said, this was just an essay that I wrote and it took off and I'm honored and it was really fun. But there is something that I do know. And I feel like I need to not play humble on this. I am absolutely convinced that you can make of your life a heroic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a student of mine who said, okay, yeah, this is great. Heroes in the scriptures, but what if I'm a woman and there aren't very many women in the scriptures? And I know that it's not fair and I'm not suggesting it is. But I said to this student, I said, well, maybe you need to be the heroine in your story so that other people can look to you. Mm. Right? Because at the end of the day, there mm. aren't enough good stories and we need more and we need more for today's time. And we need, you know, we know that this is the case. Yeah. So look to the great stories, but also don't hesitate to write your own, or I guess I should say to co-write your own. Because there's somebody who wants to make of your story something beautiful and divine and glorious. And I think that if there's one thing I hope people leave with, it's that there is the best part of the story, in my mind, is when they go to the deepest dark. And then all of a sudden, Dante comes out the other side and he, he makes it to heaven. And it's so much, it, it would have been not a very interesting book if he had just gone to heaven, frankly, right? I think that there's something about this that is profound and important and useful. So you can make of your life a beautiful story. And I I really want people to leave knowing that I had said that. Mm.